Good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be sharing God's Word with you again this Sunday morning. And uh, I'm going to ask you now uh, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 29. You know, thanks to a plethora of frivolous lawsuits and decades of government regulation, we now enjoy... Uh, just the lunacy of a ridiculous warnings on various products. I'm sure you've all noticed. For example, there's a hairdryer warning label wisely advising us to do not use while sleeping. We have portable stroller warnings such as caution, remove infant before folding for storage. We have the following warnings on packages of fireplace logs. Caution, risk of fire. Or a snow sled labeled, Beware, sled may develop high speeds under certain snow conditions. I even had a whole uh, fold-up windshield screen to block the sun while our truck was parked. And thank goodness there was a warning on there that said, Do not drive with the screen in the windshield. But the downside of all these ludicrous warnings is that they may uh, make us ignore legitimate warnings. And there are some warnings that we should absolutely not ignore. And that's the subject of this morning's message titled, See to it that you do not refuse him. Well, before we unpack all of that, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings of this day. Thank you for the privilege we have to be in your word. Thank you for the freedom we have in this great country. Uh, Lord, to... Uh, to express our uh, to express our uh, our faith uh, to express that freely and openly and Father we look forward to the day uh, very soon we hope where we will be able to gather together uh, and worship together corporately again until then Lord bless our time together now in your word in Christ's name we pray Amen. Well, God's warning of eternal judgment for those who reject the gospel is probably the most uh, perilous warning in the world, and certainly in all of Scripture. The author of Hebrews is concerned that those in the congregation who have professed faith in Christ were in danger of abandoning Christ and abandoning their profession of faith because of the intense persecution that they were facing. And so he's going to give a final warning to them and urge them uh, to persevere in their professed faith in Christ, to endure the trials, endure the hardships, and remain steadfast in what they professed, and that was faith in Christ. Now, throughout this epistle, there have been four very specific warnings uh, to those who have professed Christ, but have never truly surrendered their life to Christ. So in today's terms, what would that look like? Well, that would look like somebody who comes to church regularly, knows all the language, knows the lingo of a saved person. They they uh, talk like a saved person. Uh, they probably even have some Jesus gear in their closet and uh, maybe even a cross around their neck, a fish sticker on their bumper. But they do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. They know about Christ. They've been they're around other believers. They've seen the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of those uh, of others in church and seen the transformation of their lives that God has done. 
They sit under sound teaching and doctrine. They bring in their Bible each Sunday. They open it up to the passage. But the bottom line is, is that they're just not sure they want to fully surrender to Christ. Well, that's really an apt description of these professed believers in the epistle we're looking at today in Hebrews chapter 12. You see, under intense persecution, this group is also tempted to abandon their profession of faith and return back to Judaism. And so for the fifth and the final time in this epistle, the author of Hebrews is going to issue one final warning to them. If they go back to Judaism and remain there in their obstinance, remain there in their rebellion, after fully understanding the gospel, after fully witnessing the power of the Holy Spirit transforming lives around them, after fully understanding that, and then to willfully reject Christ is really a final rejection of Jesus. And if you rebel to the point that you're finally uh, you know, rejecting him and, ha and, and have no plans, no plans at all, no, no um, inkling, no, no desire even to return to Christ again. You're fully and willfully rejecting him. This epistle warns us here that it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Well, why is that? It's because by their own volition, they have rejected the only means of salvation. What would you repent of if the thing that you have rejected is the very means by which you are saved? So as harsh as that sounds, let's not forget that this is not their first warning. In chapter 2, the author warned them, How shall we escape if we neglect so great of salvation? Or uh, the way I phrase that is, Don't let your ship of salvation sail right on by the harbor of salvation. And you see, the longer they neglected to act upon their salvation, the longer they kept coming up with all the reasons why they didn't need to fully surrender, the easier it became to reject him. And so the longer they rejected Christ, the easier it was for unbelief to creep in, which is, brings us to our second warning. We found that in chapter 3. And then in chapters 3, verses 12 through 19, really specifically, we're warned there. He warns them. Do not depart from God in an evil heart of unbelief. See, just like those who sinned through the disobedience of unbelief and were sentenced to 40 years wandering throughout the desert, they hardened their heart and they died in the desert because of their unbelief. That was the second warning. It's like, look, you know, don't neglect your salvation by thinking you could put it off. And the second warning is, don't rebel against God and let your heart get hardened against him because that didn't work out for the group in, uh, of Israelites. And they wandered around the desert for 40 years until every last single one of them, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb from that generation, passed. So uh, they provoked God in his anger. He said, you will not enter my rest. Well, that brings us to our third warning. We found that in chapters 5 and 6. And the warning here is that they needed to quit hanging on to these basic elementary principles of Judaism and because they had not grown in their full understanding of the gospel. They were still clinging to these elementary principles of Judaism, not realizing 
that they uh, that those were just mere shadows of the things that they already had in their profession of faith in Christ. But they just couldn't get past these sacrifices. They couldn't get past the rituals and the ceremonies, even though they were but a shadow of all that Christ fulfilled in the new covenant. They couldn't let go of the old priesthood and all that accompanied it. And so the author of Hebrews then spends chapters 7, 8, and 9 explaining Melchizedek and the Melchizedekan priesthood and comparing that to the Levitical priesthood and, and pointing out all the errors, all the, all the deficiencies, all the limitations of the Levitical priesthood. And then he went into the sacrifices on, on earth and explained how those were just a mere shadow of what Christ has accomplished for us as our great high priest in a better tabernacle with a better sacrifice and with a uh, you know uh, with a with a greater high priest so then in chapter 10 because of all this neglect and because of all this unbelief and because of their immaturity they began to drift from the fellowship of believers and so in Hebrews 10:25 we find our fourth warning and what's that it's do not forsake the assembly you see their shallow faith which was made a profession only, easily found them reasons not to assemble together. And so as time marched on, without seeing the fulfillment of all they had hoped to see, no relief from this persecution, they grew more and more impatient, and then they just began to drift away. Which is why in chapter 11, the author reminds them of all those who endured through faith and yet never realized the full fulfillment of all of all of God's promises. So he takes him, he walks him through chapter 11, this great hall of faith, and says, look at all of these folks. They endured to the very end and they suffered even more than what you believe, you know, what you're suffering now. And yet they endured to the end. And so he goes through that, you know, extensive list in chapter 11, the great hall of faith, he says, look at all these people. They never saw the promises, but by faith, they continue to trust God. Don't be a patient. Just because you don't see the fulfillment of everything you asked for or hoped for immediately in Christianity, you know, trust God. God's going to supply. He's going to bring his promises to pass, whether in your lifetime or not, but remain steadfast in your in your profession of faith. And so it says, you, listen, you have nothing to fear. You need to run the race that God has set before you with endurance. That brought us back, that brings us into chapter 12, right? He says, you got this great cloud of witnesses in chapter 11. Look how they did it. Do the same thing. Every obstacle, every hill, every pitfall has been placed there by our sovereign God in this marathon race that you're running to mold and to shape you and to conform you more and more to be like Jesus. So he says again in verse 18 of chapter, of chapter 12, don't be afraid. You have not come to the mountain of the law. That would be Judaism, right? That would be uh, under the law, but instead to the, you know, the, the mountain of judgment, the mountain of law is the mountain of judgment. Instead, he says, verse 22, you've come to the mountain of Zion. To come to Christianity is not to come to judgment. It's not to come to wrath. You don't need to be afraid. And so that leads us these, to these concluding statements at the end of chapter 12 in our text this morning. He wants them to know, listen, 
there are some real dangers associated with renouncing your profession of faith and returning back to Judaism. And so he wants to take this last opportunity to warn them before he concludes this letter to them. Now, our text in verses 25 to 29, it's divided very easily for us. And the argument uh, goes from the lesser to the greater. And here's the argument. If those under the old covenant, the, the inferior covenant, uh, incurred God's judgment for their disobedience, how much more will we be judged if we neglect God's provision in Christ? And if the signs of God's presence were so frightening when he shook Mount Sinai, how much more frightening do you think it will be when he shakes the entire creation? And then he's going to give them this admonition. But since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, and since our God is a consuming fire, here's the way you should respond. Your response should be to persevere in faithful, reverent service to him. Well, let's begin unpacking our text, shall we, here? Let's look at verse 25 in chapter 12. It reads, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who would turn away from him who warns from heaven. Point number one in your notes, do not refuse the voice of Christ speaking through the gospel. Do not refuse the voice of Christ speaking through the gospel. Now we've looked at this here. What is this referring to? It says, when you are warned on earth, uh, much more will escape those when the warning comes from heaven. Well, really, this is a reference back uh, what we looked at in verse 19 to Exodus 19. When the Israelites, remember, heard God's voice, thundering and the ground shaking at Simon. They were so terrified. Remember what they said? They begged that, that no further words would be spoken to them. Now here's what's interesting here. When you do a little word study in this verse, that same Greek word that's used in verse uh, 25, uh, or verse 19 that says begged, is actually used again in verse 25, but it's translated refuse. Now that should give us some insight into what the author is saying here. He's, he's kind of linking those two things together by uh, doing a little play on words here. You see, what the author of Hebrews is comparing the Israelites, their request at Sinai to, not, to have God not speak to them anymore, begging God to not speak anymore to them, is really a parable, a parable of the hardness of their heart toward God. And you know what that led to? When their hearts became hardened towards God, it led to their rebellion and their disobedience in the wilderness and unbelief. And so they begged not to hear any more of God's voice, but that didn't really work out so well for them, did it? But now God has spoken in an even greater way through his son, even more through the blood of his son. And so he says, listen, see to it that you don't refuse him who's speaking, you you begged that, you know, that when God shook the mountain there, when he was giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, you begged that he would quit speaking to you. See to it, you don't refuse, refuse 
who's speaking to you here and now through his son. Now, there's a good example of this, uh, and we can find this, a good parable of this in Luke chapter 14. So turn there with me, with me if you will. Luke chapter 14, and this is the parable of the Great Supper. And we're going to find that beginning in around, let's just pick it up in verse 18. Well, let me give you a little context here first. Uh, uh, Jesus gives this parable. He says, when one of those who were reclined at the table with him heard this, he said to them, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him and gives the parable here and beginning in verse 16, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to those who had been invited. Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it to please consider me excused. And then another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And then another one said, I have married a wife. And for that reason, I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Uh, so notice here what's happened here in this parable. And uh, I think this parable helps us to really help us understand this verse more fully. See that word translated refuse is used here in this parable of, uh, of the great supper. So the, again, the man had made a great preparation. He sends out these invitations uh, to come to his dinner party. But then he receives these really uh, poor excuses, these lame excuses in response. Oh, I'm sorry, I bought a piece of land. I need to go check it out. But, you know, I won't be able to make it to the dinner. Sorry. Uh, the second one, I bought five uh, yoke of oxen. I, I've got to try them out. You know, I'm not going to be able to make it either. The third one, hey, I'm married now. I'm not going to be able to make it. And so notice how the master responds. Verse 21. The slave came back and reported this to the master. And then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city, bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways along the hedges and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. Verse 24. Notice this here. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So the master then, after being refused by his invited guests, instructed his servant to go out in the streets and then invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Go out and fill my house with guests, these guests then. And then he gives this warning. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Now let's bring... The message of that parable, which is the refusal of God's gracious invitation. And bring it to our text here this morning. You see, God's invitation in the gospel to forgive all your sins and to give you eternal life if you respond is the greatest invitation in the world. What more could he do than to send his own son and have his own son shed his innocent blood as the penalty for every sinner who will believe in him to redeem those who will put their faith in him. He, he will pay the price for their sin. And since the gospel is the greatest privilege imaginable, to refuse it is the greatest 
sin imaginable. And we who've received God's gift in the gospel should count it as our greatest possession, my friends, because it beats anything this world has to offer. My friends, how easily we dismiss this precious gift, just like the parable. How easily we dismiss this precious gift that God has offered us as invited guests to eternal life through the gospel message. Oh, I pray that's not you, my friends. So point number one, do not refuse the voice of Christ speaking through the gospel. Now let's go back to our text here in Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verses 26 and 27. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he promised saying, yet one more thing, I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Point number two in your notes here. Believers have inherited a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Believers have inherited a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Once again, the author takes us back to the scene again in Exodus 19 when God spoke at Mount Sinai and the whole earth shook violently. But here, he also alludes then to the prophecy from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, which reads, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. What does that mean? Well, that's a prophecy about Christ's second coming. You see, at Christ's second coming, all the kingdoms of this world will be shaken into oblivion. And God's shaking of the earth and heaven is a frequent image in the Bible to refer to the final judgment in the day of the Lord. And so let's look at that, shall we? I want to just give you a few examples here. We'll walk through these and let's begin. We'll just look at them in the book of Revelation. There are some in Isaiah uh, as well, Isaiah 14 and Isaiah 28. Uh, both have this images of earthquakes as judgment. But I want to begin here in Revelation chapter 6 and begin and look at verse 12. Revelation chapter 6 verse 12 reads, uh, in the vision of the Apostle John, he writes, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders of the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains, to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of, the, of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Then look at Revelation chapter 8 verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it, threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds of flashing of lightning and what? An earthquake. Move ahead now to Revelation chapter 11, verse 13. We read here, in that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake 
and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God in heaven. And finally, look at Revelation chapter 16 here. Revelation chapter 16, we get another example of this image of judgment, referred to the final judgment. Revelation chapter 16, beginning in verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of his fierce wrath. My friends, someday, perhaps even very soon, God will speak and the earth and heaven will shake as they have never shaken before. And all that will remain is those things that are part of the kingdom of God. And as we've seen before, there's greater privilege and blessing also means when it's rejected, there's greater responsibility and judgment. And so as a result, the author of Hebrews reminds his readers that a day is coming when all of that rebellion against God, all of the rejection of his gracious offer of salvation will finally and fully be addressed. There is coming a day, my friends, when the manifestation of God's terrible holiness, even greater than that seen at Sinai, will appear in a shaking that will include not only the earth, but the heavens. You know, there's something that's downright chilling, isn't there? About the thought of heaven and earth shaking. You know, even in our own time, lifetimes, we've watched the crumbling of much of what we once thought was to be quite stable. Faith in human government is probably at an all-time low. Confidence in science as the savior of a human race has been waned as we continue to have wars and, and urban decay and biological warfare and despair as incurable diseases continue to increase. Even long-accepted moral standards have disappeared under the onslaught of divorce and sexual immorality and sexual explicitness and homosexuality and abortion. I could go on and on. And even though we could see some of the things that we've foolishly placed our hope in crumble before our very eyes, our text tells us that's, that not just the earth will be judged, but the whole of the universe will be judged. And God is going to shake the heavens as well as the earth. And the only things that will survive the shaking are unbreakable things. And the things that are made unbreakable by Christ will survive that shaking. My friends, we have to live in view of that final shakeup, if you will. Our lives should reflect the things that will last, the unbreakable things, the unshakable things. What are the things that will survive that final shaking? That's what we need to... That's what we need to cling to. But let me ask you, what are you holding on to that can be shaking or that can be removed? Everything that is wrong will be done away with. Sin won't remain. Anything that's earthbound is not going to survive this great shaking. 
You shouldn't trust anything that has the label made on the earth, if you will, on it. So what are the things that are unshakable? Everything heaven-bound, like you and I, and the spiritual investment in God's kingdom that we send ahead of us, like our salvation in the Lord, about being a child of the King, the disciples, the, the discipleship that we've invested with, those that we've poured into and mentored in disciples. Our relationship with Christ will never be shaken. If everything earthbound was stripped away today, let me ask you that. What would you be left with? I hope that you would be left with unshakable things. So point number one is do not refuse the voice of Christ speaking through the gospel. Point number two, believers have an inherited a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And finally, in verses 28 and 29, we see our third point. Let's look at that together. Therefore, therefore, again, based on everything that we've covered in verses 25 through 27. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable servants, service, I'm sorry, with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Point number three, believers should serve him with a thankful and reverent heart for our God is a consuming fire. The proper response to God's gracious offer of salvation, to a, of God's gracious offer of a kingdom that cannot be shaken is to be grateful, is to be thankful. And that thankfulness that we would be included in that kingdom, that we would be a child of the king, that we would be saved for all eternity is the motivation for our worship. Because we're part of this unshakable eternity, the author of Hebrews says, let us show thankfulness in the kind of service of God. And what's that look like? What's that characterized by? It's it's demonstrated, it's characterized by reverential fear and awe of God. This fear and awe is not the fear of terror. It's the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of the wisdom. <clears throat> it's the fear of the Lord that characterizes salvation. But what about the person who only professes Christ, but is not truly saved? What does it look like for them? What happens to the person who refuses the salvation that's offered through Christ? Is there anything that they could do at all that would please God and give them entrance into this eternal kingdom? What about all the good things they've done in their life? Don't they count for anything? And especially, what's in view for the one who knows the gospel, who understands it, who's seen the transformation of lives all around them, who's who's partaken of the Holy Spirit to the point they, they understand, they've had the conviction of their own sin, and yet they attach themselves to all that just superficially, but they never surrender their life to Christ. What is, what's in store for them? Is their judgment as severe as the one who doesn't know Christ at all? Well, the answer to that, my friend, is found in the last verse. It is the sternest warning in the entire book of Hebrews. And he's saying, people, my friends, 
You've come all the way to the edge of salvation. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to Sinai. Because if you thought it was bad then, if you thought it was terrifying then, if you're still stuck there when Christ comes again, it's damnation in a way the world didn't even think was possible. In fact, it's so horrible, so horrific, that the Bible even says, if the days were not shortened, no flesh would survive. Not even the godly would survive if God graciously doesn't end what is happening. That judgment at the end. And so, my friends, he tells them, if you're to turn your back on Christ and walk away and go back to Judaism, you're going back to Sinai. You're turning your back on Zion. He says, you don't need to be afraid of Zion. But you should be terrified to refuse Christ and go back to Sinai. Beloved, God's going to judge every one of us on two out of two books. On two bases, if you will. The first one is on the basis of the gospel. The other is on the basis of the law. If you've come to Jesus Christ, you'll be judged on the basis of the gospel. But if you've rejected Jesus Christ, you're going to be judged on the basis of the law. And God has two sets of books here. One of them is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is written in that, my friends, you've come to Christ fully. You've surrendered to Christ. You are a child of the King. And your name, you will live forever with Christ in eternity. But God forbid if your name is not written there. Because all the deeds of your life are written in what the Bible calls the other books. And God is going to examine those books. And here's what he's looking for. Did you keep the law perfectly? And if you did not, you are damned. Let me ask you, is there anybody who could keep the law perfectly? The answer to that, of course, is no. But God is going to judge men only one of two ways. You're either judged by the gospel where Christ paid it all, or you're judged by the law. But no person has ever been saved by the law. Romans 3, Romans 3 tells us, by the deeds of the flesh shall no but I'm sorry, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. You will not be declared not guilty by the law. Matter of fact, the law will condemn you. And so he says to the folks listening here in this little church who are tempted to go back, who are tempted to sit on the fence post, if you will, tempted to go back to Judaism and turn their back completely against Christ. He says, you got a choice. You can either come to Sinai or go back to Sinai or come to Zion. The choice is yours. But he says, you, you should understand that you have been warned. You're either going to face God in the terror at Sinai with your works which will be consumed with you. Because unless they were holy and perfect and righteous, which no man has ever done, with the exception of Christ, 
then you will pay the wages of your sin. And the wages of sin, Romans chapter 6 tells us, is death. Or you'll come by grace to God at Zion through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you will find grace and peace and, and security and you'll find worship and fellowship in the presence of a loving God and you'll find Jesus Christ and you'll find full forgiveness. Everything hinges on knowing who God is and what he has done for you by his grace in Christ. And he's given you the greatest privilege by speaking to us from heaven through, through the gospel, through his atoning work at the cross, by giving us a kingdom that can never be shaken. He's the great God whose voice will shake both the earth and the heaven. As believers, my friends, we have a great responsibility. We should respond in thankfulness, in reverential awe, and we should serve and worship him out of that gratefulness. But for those who reject him, they should never forget that the same God who stands with open arms inviting you to come to Mount Zion is a consuming fire to all those who refuse him. The God of the universe will not be dismissed or placated to some spot you've reserved for him in case things get really bad in your life. He will not stand by until you're ready to complete every sinful desire in your life. And then, maybe then, you'll be ready to surrender your life to him. Beloved, do not refuse he who is speaking to you through his gospel. Don't just come up to the edge. Don't just be part of the crowd that's hanging around true believers and believe that, that you're secure in your salvation. You have to come all the way to Jesus Christ. You have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you will be saved. Not you might be saved, not you could be saved, not you should be saved, but you will be saved. But you've got to go all the way. You have to surrender it all. My friends, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and you're listening here today, I pray that today would be that day. I pray that today would be the day you would surrender your life to Christ. That you would recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that you want to not just glance upon Mount Zion. You want to run to Jesus. You want to be an invited guest that can't wait to come to the dinner. You do not want to refuse the gospel message. You do not want to refuse this invitation from Christ himself. Because, my friends, someday, perhaps someday soon, Christ will return. The first time he came to save and seek those who were lost. The second time he comes as a judge. And our God is a consuming fire. And I pray that you 
are not waiting, thinking in your mind that you've got plenty of time because even the last breath you took is by the grace of God. I pray, I beg, I plead you, come to Christ. Surrender your life to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for your wonderful truth. And Lord, as frightening as we, some of these passages are, the passage that we looked at here tonight, especially the last part there, we still see your grace peppered throughout it. Where you stand on Mount Zion with open arms and plead with us to come to you. Lord, I pray that we would put our sinful pride away. Lord, that we would put away any obstacle that stands between you and I, you and, and us, Lord, in salvation. I pray that we would recognize that we're a sinner and that we have rebelled against a holy God. And Lord, that the wages for that are our death and eternal damnation. But Lord, in your grace, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you have provided a way for us to have eternal life with you. But we can't just come to the edge. We can't just pretend like we're part of this. We can't just make a profession of faith and not truly believe it in our hearts, not truly surrender our lives. Because, Father, you don't look like we do on the, at the external things of man. You look at our hearts and you know. And so, Father, I pray if there's one in our midst today who does not know you, today would be the day they'd surrender their life to you. Thank you, Lord, again for the truth of your word. All glory and praise and honor go to you. Lord, finish this message in the hearts and minds of all who are listening now, Lord. May your will be accomplished in and through them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.